This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Find out what Reynolds is up to in the digital retailing space by visiting reyrey.com slash retailanywhere. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash retailanywhere. Hello, and welcome to Daily Drive. It's Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. Russia's invasion of Ukraine creates challenges for the auto industry, some immediate, some longer term. We'll get to that a little later. First, let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Overnight, a Tokyo court has found former Nissan executive Greg Kelly guilty of helping Carlos Ghosn under-report compensation in 2017, but the American was cleared on the bulk of the allegations he faced. The 65-year-old was given a six-month suspended sentence and may return soon to the U.S. The Tennessee Human Resources Executive and Attorney was arrested while on a November 2018 business trip to Japan. In a statement after the verdict was handed down, Kelly said he was extremely shocked and there is no evidence that he was involved in any illegal act. He vowed to appeal the conviction. Prosecutors alleged that Ghosn conspired to hide more than $80 million in deferred compensation from 2010 to 2018. Ghosn fled Japan while out on bond to avoid prosecution. The court also fined Nissan $1.7 million for filing falsified securities reports. Our Hans Greimel, based in Tokyo, has all the details at autonews.com. Turning to U.S. light vehicle sales, Motor Intelligence says the seasonally adjusted annualized rate of sales fell to 14.15 million in February. That's down from January's 15.2 million, but still the second fastest rate since July. The month came in on the low end of analyst estimates after Ford reported a 21% drop in February sales, split pretty evenly between the Ford and Lincoln brands, and Volvo sales fell 32%. Retailers continue to grapple with low inventory levels caused by the global microchip shortage and other supply chain interruptions. In Tesla news, a couple of items. CEO Elon Musk says he is inviting the UAW to hold a vote at the company's Fremont, California assembly plant. Musk tweeting that the company, quote, will do nothing to stop them. The offer comes after U.S. President Joe Biden praised General Motors and Ford during the State of the Union speech, but failed to mention Tesla, which is by far the leader in electric vehicle sales. Bloomberg reported the president's aversion to Tesla has to do with Musk's hostility toward unions. Last year, the National Labor Relations Board ruled that Tesla had repeatedly violated U.S. labor law, including by firing a union activist. Meantime, in Germany, Tesla has reportedly won approval from authorities for its factory near Berlin. Sources telling the Handelsblatt newspaper that the plant is expected to start ramping up production soon. Officials in Germany will hold a news conference tomorrow to discuss the decision. Now to an update on the automotive impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. BMW is halting production at several plants in Europe due to a parts shortage related to the war. The downtime is impacting nearly every plant the automaker operates in Europe. 
BMW sources wire harnesses for electrical systems from western Ukraine, and that supply has been disrupted. Meanwhile, Honda and Ford have joined the long list of automakers to suspend their limited operations in Russia. Honda does not have a plant in Russia where it sells about 1,500 vehicles annually. Ford's business there has been downsized considerably over the past three years. Ford also says it is making a $100,000 donation to a global Ukraine relief fund. Stellantis saying it is committing $1.1 million to humanitarian aid to support Ukrainian refugees. And that's the news you need to know. We'll take a deeper look at what the conflict in Ukraine can show us about the value of trade and risk management after this. As online experiences have continued to evolve, it's clear dealers need an approach that will keep them in the business for the long term. Chris Walsh, Casey Edwards, and Dave Bates, top Reynolds executives, sat down to discuss today's digital retailing landscape. Here's an excerpt from that roundtable discussion. So what are dealers trying to do to get this fully online and online to in-store experience? I mean, that's a great question. And honestly, it's, a, it's kind of a hard one to answer because retailers are kind of defining and using digital retailing differently. You know, to some dealers, it's selling a car. To other, it's sales and F&I. And they, they tend to be approaching it in chunks versus, you know, kind of a holistic, holistic approach. And then you end up just focusing on one or two things when you need to focus on, you know, more of a big picture. Digital retailing is dealership operations, period. Reynolds' Retail Anywhere approach focuses on streamlining dealership operations and improving profitability. For more information about this big picture, holistic approach, visit reyrey.com slash retail anywhere. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash retail anywhere. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters. Remember the old TV series, The West Wing, where Toby, the super liberal speechwriter, riffs on how capitalism makes the world a better place? Free trade stops wars, he said. But not always. Russia and Ukraine are not big automaking countries, but Vladimir Putin's invasion of Russia's neighbor is having significant ripple effects on the industry, as we've been discussing all week. To put the situation in context and discuss some of the tools for managing risk, I spoke with Mark Wakefield global co-leader of the automotive and industrial practice at Alex Partners. He's based in Detroit. The global multi-industry consulting firm has offices throughout the world, but not in Russia. Mark Wakefield, welcome back to Daily Drive. Thanks very much. Excited to be here. Well, I wish it was under better circumstances, but I really wanted to get your input and insights on this conflict in Ukraine after the uh, Russia's, Russian invasion. But of course, we, we keep seeing announcements about automakers and suppliers having to uh, idle production or make adjustments. How, how big is Russia and Ukraine in terms of automaking? It, it seems like they're small, but the ripple effects uh, are, are being felt across Europe. Yeah, the ripple yeah, effects the ripple are being effects. felt now, and the cost impact is also going to be felt um, now and in the future. So they're not a big player in the, the automotive world, neither making cars nor parts. But as, as you and, and everyone knows, you can't 
make a car if you're missing the one part out of thousands. So some of the wire harnesses, some of the, the raw materials, some of the other uh, parts that are coming out of Ukraine, um, people have been trying to, to move them or to, to source them elsewhere and otherwise to be able to get through it. Um, but, uh, but not all of that's successful, not all of that's easy and fast. Ukraine, like many of the Eastern European countries, did get some of the higher labor content parts. Um, so while it's you know, a fraction of, of, say, Romania or other Eastern European countries and for uh, North America, it doesn't even you know, make the top 100, really, of, of places from, uh, from the sources. There is impacts. But the price impact in the, the, on aluminum, on, on palladium, um, the concerns on power and natural gas, the, these types of, of things certainly drive a longer-term concern and a longer-term risk management approach that, that has to happen. And that's a bit on the material side. There's also the cyber side. You know, we do work to help clients audit their, their vulnerabilities and, and fix those. And it's, it's not the mainstream part of our business, but it is a part of our business. And it's, it's been uh, a very popular part of our business in the last few weeks as people want to make sure that they're uh, protected from, from those as Western companies um, pull out of, of direct engagement with Russia. So since this conflict started, it seems you know companies have been prioritizing, you know, securing the safety of their employees and maybe seeking alternatives uh, for supplies. Uh, what else is going on? What what advice uh, is Alex Partners giving to clients? Well, finding alternatives and making sure. Well, first of all, I mean, obviously the humanitarian thing first. Um, do you have people there? Do you have people in the in Ukraine? Do you have people um, in areas that need to get out of those areas? Uh, is everyone safe? Um, the what stance you know are are our companies taking? As Alex Partners, we've taken the stance that, that we're not going to serve the Russian government nor state-owned entities, and we have a very uh, strong risk management process for taking any client on to make sure it fits with our core values and reputation. And we find uh, many of our clients are, are looking at those issues too um, and, and making a values-based decision usually first um, and a humanitarian approach first uh, before getting to you know, what we're probably going to talk most about, uh, the, the workings of business and the alternatives one goes for. So Looking for alternatives, looking for ways to uh, to keep plants running from the parts that might have been coming from Ukraine. Um, look, doing threat assessments on what might not come as easily out of Russia or areas close around to Russia, um, and looking at the longer term impacts of of, um, of power um, to plants, to run plants of um, shipping and cargo and. Um, rethinking of supply chains. Mm-hmm. We, we've, we've certainly got a lot of interest in, we have a tool that sort of says what moves from one country to another and maps it all out nicely. You know, times like this, that's those are the times when you really get into um, that last part uh, out of 5,000 
um, <laughs> rather than just sort of thinking in pie charts when one thinks about supply chains. Well, you mentioned, you know, the rethinking. I mean, it seems like so many things lately have been encouraging companies to shorten their supply chains, you know, whether it's the Felicity Ace uh, and, and that fire or uh, the blockade at the border with Canada, uh, just, you know, weather and maybe computer chips. Um, is that is that an important takeaway for the industry right now or is that more of a head fake? No, it's it is important. It's it's a bit of a repeat, though, of of the many bumps we've had that turn into stoppages because we're just the the inventory chain is so tight from the recovery from from COVID that any little disruption becomes a big disruption. And then it echoes, even after solved, it echoes in price um, and it echoes in, in capacity. So some of the, this is a acceleration and a continuation of the lesson. So, you know, if, if people have been turtling and hoping they can get back to just issuing purchase orders and, and setting, you know, set and forget type of supply chain management and not being deeply involved through the tiers in supply chain management and in risk mitigation and the strategic inventory and, and committed capital and finding ways to not just on suppliers of parts, but suppliers of transportation and logistics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the lesson has been participate, get involved, know what you're doing, take smart risk mitigations rather than blanket risk mitigations um, and work through this with a sense of ownership. And this, this latest um, problem to that has, has only exacerbated it, particularly for, for Western Europe. So like a lot of automotive news readers and uh, Daily Drive podcast listeners, I went to business school back in the 20th century and they taught us about you know specialization and uh free trade and and really the idea that if you know companies have customers and factories and supply chains in other countries than the one where they're headquartered then their governments might be disinclined to uh you know bomb those places that have the factories and the customers and and workers uh, Kind of this uh, this notion that that free trade helps encourage, if not uh, require, you know, peace. And of course, this has been a real uh, challenge to that thinking. <laughs> uh, we've seen, of course, you know, GM and Ford largely pulled out of of Russia, you know, previously because it just wasn't paying off for them economically. But as we see, you know, companies pulling back. I mean, what what do you think is sort of the takeaway? from this experience and this kind of naked aggression and what it what it tells us about maybe the limits of multinational corporations to encourage world peace. Yeah, I mean, there's other things we learned in business school, uh, you know, game theory and negotiation leverage <laughs> and risk management. And, and so you need to take it all together because the logic is still there for free trade peace. This logic is still there for global maximums and you know best practices and specialization in these pieces. 
but the realities of, of um, the political, the nationalist landscape, some of the things that have changed have made um, people have to rethink those. And the economics of, of you know, Asia as a factory to the world, China as a factory to the world, have, have changed somewhat, particularly with transportation, but also with tariffs and other things. And so it has been a, a move to figuring out how do I, how do I find a version 2.0 of, of globalization where I'm less exposed to risks, but I'm still getting scale benefits on learnings, if not on physical goods flows. Um, and so while there's, on the face of it, it looks like a retrenchment to, to um, onshoring and nearshoring, um, to duplicating supply chains and duplicating for risk management. Uh, that taken in a blunt way is an extremely expensive approach. And so there has to be smarter ways that, that thread the needle and it's, it gets into decision trees and case-by-case case exercises and scenarios that get adjusted over time as we learn from not just political things, but also natural disasters. And mm-hmm. learned a lot from what happened in Fukushima and, and what happened afterwards in a variety of, of every two years, a big natural disaster as well, but that drove more visibility, more need for visibility into supply chain designs and more thoughtfulness about where to participate and how to participate. Is there anything else uh, we should uh, we should tap into from the world of risk management? That's a it was a really a really good review there. Is there uh, any any other thoughts we should uh, we should keep in mind? I mean, it's it's useful to keep in mind that um, that you can't not participate and win, but if you're too naked and and um, and naive, you can, uh, you're also pretty much guaranteed to lose at some point. Um, so if you look at like an optimization of gambling, for example, the big betters, the wild betters always lose. And the people who are too tight also lose. <laughs> um, so if you, if you take the sort of study of risk, um, the winning outcome is not to avoid all risk, it's to manage it. Excellent point to stop. Mark Wakefield, Alex Partners, thank you so much for your your time and insights. My pleasure, Jamie. Thank you. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. You can get all the news on how the Ukraine situation is roiling auto production and learn about everything else happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Thanks to Nathan Kadick for editing today's show. Thanks to the ANTV team and web editor Victor Galvan for their help. And thanks to you for listening. Now, let's all get back to work.